So for the past three weeks, we've been working through a series called The Undivided Self. Uh, we, Tom kicked us off a few weeks back by, by helping us see that there, there isn't a distinction between the, the secular and the spiritual. So often in our lives, we can, we can view the world as being split in those kinds of ways, that we have our spiritual life and we have our secular life, and they sometimes come together, maybe on Sunday morning, but otherwise they stay separate. Uh, it's one of those things, is, are there certain places where you act differently, right? Uh, is, are, do you curse like a sailor in your car, but not in church? Some, right? Is it one of those kinds of things? Or are we, is there a consistency in both those spaces? Because truthfully, the Bible tells us over and over and over again that in all of those spaces, God is present. So there isn't a distinction between spiritual and secular. All of life is spiritual. And God is calling us to be undivided in all of those places. We follow that up then by talking about what that looks for us in different spheres in our lives. We started with what that means for us at home by looking at the life of Paul and Timothy and how they, the two of them related together. What we see in the life of Paul and Timothy is that Paul goes to get Timothy, understanding uh, the role that he's going to have with Timothy. In Scripture, Paul refers to Timothy like a son. Like, even though he's not a biological father, at the beginning of his life in particular, Paul interacts with Timothy just like he was his own son training him, teaching him how to do the things that he's going to do later on. He, Paul knows his role in that and then also understands that he needs to model the kind of life that Timothy should be following. We finish that up by saying we do both of those things at home, then by partnering together with others so that we can move forward as a community. Last week, we looked at the power of friendship. We looked at Paul and Barnabas. We, we saw that Barnab the name Barnabas is actually a nickname, uh, which means son of encouragement, that was given to him by the apostles. This is a guy that just was an encouraging person. We also saw that the apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, probably doesn't become the apostle Paul unless Barnabas was there to support him. It's Barnabas who, who introduces Paul to the, apostles, the disciples in Jerusalem. It's Barnabas who goes to get Paul when he's in Tarsus to come teach in Antioch where Christians are first called Christians. Barnabas, is in, Barnabas seeing Paul, the skills that he has, and encouraging him to use that as a friend uh, helps Paul become who he is. Now today, we're going to wrestle with a different area in which we can be divided. An area that runs throughout the Bible. It's actually one that the Bible talks about a lot. How do we be good neighbors? Even more than that, how do we be Christ-like neighbors? Now, one of my favorite things to do is whenever we look at an idea like this is to do a quick word search through the Bible. How, how regular is the idea of neighbor in the Bible? And it doesn't take long to realize that the word neighbor comes up quite a bit in the Bible. I started with the New Testament. How many times, did, does anyone want to guess, how many times did the New Testament use the word neighbor? Curious how close you'll be. It's a good guess. It's high, right? It's actually, it actually was a lot lower than I thought. It's only 17. The Greek word for, for, for neighbor is pliaison, uh, uh, and it's only used 17 times in the New Testament, and much of which is around the um, parable of the Good Samaritan. So I thought, huh, that, it feels like it's in there more. I wonder why. So I moved to the Old Testament, and that was entirely different. In the Old Testament, the word for neighbor is ra'ah, and you've got to get that little break in there if you're going to say it right. But throughout the Old Testament, where it's only used 17 times in the New, it's used 188 in the Old Testament. And in almost all of those instances, it's accompanied by the call to feed or to protect or to do both towards your neighbor at the same time. 
That's a significant number. The idea of neighbor is a big deal in the Old Testament, and it actually makes a lot of sense that it would be different in both Old and New Testament contexts. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people lived in, in little house groups called insulas, right? Uh, the Jewish communities fun- that's the, functioned in those ways. You, somebody goes to a place where, the, where a village or a city begins, and they build a house. They have kids, and their kids build a house onto that house. And then maybe the uncle comes and joins. And so you end up with these, these units that sometimes are related, but sometimes are, but, are, but are least related in the fact that they share the same mission, share a lot of their resources together. These insulas, whether you are blood-related or not, function like home units in which everybody's looking out for each other. It's not how Greece or Rome functioned, though. Greece or Rome functioned a lot more like we do, where we each go to our individual spaces and we have our own private spots, uh, and we don't do those things the same kind of way. So it makes sense, then, the word neighbor would be used far more frequently in the Old Testament than the New. But the Bible is regularly charging us to wrestle with what it means to be neighbor. So let's explore that a little bit today. Uh, We're going to be jumping around the Bible a little bit, so if you have a Bible or an app, I encourage you to get it out. I would have it on the screen. You can look backwards if you want to see it on the screen, because I do have prepared, uh, but that would be awkward, or you can look at it in the Bible. We're going to start in Matthew 5 today, which says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now this little bit of scripture is part of something known as the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' greatest sermons. And in this particular space, he starts by comparing us to salt. Now, do we have any chefs out there? What does salt do in cooking? Right? It's, what's that? It does make everything better. Actually, that's, that's not far off. Because salt, salt is not the primary ingredient in anything, right? You don't make a salt dish. You might make a dish that has salt on it, or I guess if you go to McDonald's, that's pretty much a salt dish. But you get what I'm saying, right? Uh, those fries, though, are so stinking good. I'm not even sure it's technically food, but I'm okay with it, I think. Uh, what I mean by that is that you, you don't make a dish out of salt. You add salt to something. To do what? Well, salt has two primary functions in cooking. First, it can preserve food. It's been used for centuries to help keep food safe. Right? If it, 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 it keeps food from rotting, from going bad, from all of those things. Salt functions in that way. But in actual dish, what it does is it enhances flavor. That's the purpose of salt when you're cooking. It's a flavor enhancer. It, a good cook most of the time doesn't want salt to be the primary flavor. Again, unless it's a McDonald's french fry, then you want all of it. But other than that, right? What salt is meant to do is take the flavors that already exist and enhance them, to make them uh, pop a little bit more or, or be able to taste them in a fuller way. And so when Jesus is saying to us that we are to be salt, what he's saying is we need to be preservers and enhancers. Hold on to that for just a minute. Because he also says we're supposed to be light. And light in this context also has two two primary uh, properties. 
When we talk about light and what that means in regards to how we interact with each other, light does two things. It illuminates, right, especially if it's positioned right, and we see that in this little teaching here as well. Light helps us see things we couldn't see otherwise. You put a lamp on a stand, and it gives light to the whole room, and what was dark then becomes illuminated. But light also attracts. Light illuminates, helps us see we can't, things that we can't see, but it also attracts. If you've ever been outside in the summer when you have just one light, you see the bugs that it attracts, right? There's a whole bunch of them that just swarm around that little bit of light. The same thing's true in, 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 in for, for, for things that are bigger than flies as well. If you're wandering through the darkness, when you, if you see light up ahead, it, you're drawn towards it. Light attracts people, too, so that we hopefully can point them back to God. In this little section of the, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is saying is that you are salt and you are light. You are, you are, you are preservers and enhancers. You are illuminators and attractors. So Jesus calling us to be both of that helps us understand what the mission of the church is. To be people that, that do those things. And I want you to hold on to that for a second as we shift gears just a little bit. Now, if I could have shown pictures this morning, I didn't actually pull one because I heard before I, uh, before I needed to um, that we, I couldn't put a picture up there. But I would have put a picture of a sarcophagus up. Hopefully you can picture what that looks like, right? Sarcophagus is uh, like the thing you put a mummy in, kind of, right? Or it's kind of like a coffin, and it's, which feels like a weird turn, and it wouldn't have felt as weird if I could have put a picture up, but stick with me for just a minute. You see, the word sarcophagus comes from two Greek words that are smashed together. First is the word sark, which means flesh, and phagos, which means eater, right? So a sarcophagus is a flesh eater, which is kind of a weird thing, right? See, there were many ancient cultures that believed that the flesh of a person was bad. They believed that our souls were essentially prisoners inside of our flesh. And so when a person died, that flesh had to be taken off in order to free the, 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 the good soul from inside of its, cap, its body that was keeping it captive. We've actually found many... Now, when we think of sarcophaguses, usually we think of Egypt, which does preserve your flesh a little bit as a mummy. It's a different kind of thing. But we also found a lot of other sarcophagi. I think that's the plural of it, sarcophaguses. I'm not sure, actually. Uh, either way, uh, we found other ones that, are, that do have an entirely different purpose. They would be filled with things like dead maggots and worms and things like that uh, in order to actually eat away the flesh of a person. Right? They would actually try to get them out of the fleshy body and into other stuff. It's super gross. I get it. But why do we go there? Well, it gets us to a word that describes the heart of a problem that many of us feel when we think about what it means to be a neighbor, and particularly in the reference to salt and life. And it's, it gets us to a word, the process of defleshing something. Now, defleshing is not a word, but it's called uh, excarnation. Uh, it's the process of removing flesh from bones, right? Getting rid of those. I understand it feels like we just went way into left field, but stick with me for one more minute, and hopefully it'll all make sense. Maybe not. Well, no. A few years ago, a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor wrote a book called The Secular Age. And the main point of that book was to, that he, his main argument in that book was that today we have entered into what he calls the age of excarnation. He claims that we have essentially have entered into an era in which we lost sight in what, of what it means to be truly human. And I, I actually, at first I was like, I don't know about that. And then I started to think about it and I go, wait a minute, if we really start to slow down, 
I think a lot of us, there are many of us who can feel that to be true. Where, we, it, what is it, where do we actually fit in this world? What does it mean to be a person? What are all of those things are, are more confusing now than they've ever been before. Now, that matters a lot to us if that is the way that the world is feeling. Because if you're a Christian, it's something we have to take really seriously. Because at the very center of the Christian message is a proclamation, one that if you read through the letters of Paul in particular, he hammers it over and over and over and over again. And that is, that, that, that is not a, a proclamation of excarnation, but of its opposite, of incarnation. Throughout, the, throughout the, the New Testament in particular, over and over and over again, they will hammer the fact that Jesus was incarnate as person, with flesh, with bones. And, 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 and it's almost weird how hard Paul will hit that, to say, you, we're not talking about just spirit here, we're talking about actual uh, flesh and bone and person in the midst of this whole thing. It's not just Paul either. John actually begins his gospel making sure that we understand that. If you've ever read the Christmas story in John, it's weird. Because it begins with that, with in the beginning where was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. A little bit later, what does he say? He says, then the Word became flesh and essentially moves into the neighborhood. John makes sure he begins his gospel with a declaration of incarnation, not excarnation. See, the center of the Christian message is Jesus, who showed humanity what it means to be fully human and fully alive, and the Bible over and over and over again says a key component of that is actually incarnation. So what Taylor argues is that we're going in the wrong direction, that we have become defleshed people, not incarnate, but excarnate. And here's why he makes that claim. He says there was a day where people would carry knowledge in their bodies. If they wanted to cook, they didn't do it with recipes, right? They learned how to prepare a meal from their grandmothers, right? Grandma knew the recipe. You didn't have to write it down because she knew how to do it. And she also didn't use measuring cups for her salt or sugar or whatever. What did she use? She used her fingers, right? Because she knew how to make that work. The, the, The recipe lived inside of her. That knowledge was incarnate in her. It was enfleshed. Another example of that. Maybe you've heard of the Italian violin maker Antonio Stradivari. Has anybody heard of him before? Stradivarius violins are the most well-built, famous violins ever made. There's estimated there's only around 500 left in the entire world, and you've got to have around a million bucks if you want to buy one. Right? That's how rare and valuable these things are. But here's the thing. We can't remake a Stradivarius violin. With all of our sophisticated technology, we just can't recreate it. They're not the same. Because Stradivarius didn't create his violins using measurements and formulas. His knowledge was contained in his body, in his flesh. It was incarnate knowledge. They said he knew how to mix the varnish by the smell it would produce. Something to think about, right? How, how to get the right varnish mix, he knew, how, he knew from the smell. He knew how much to rub on the violin by the way it felt on his fingers. We just can't recreate that. So Taylor argues we've entered into a new day and age, one in which no one needs information in their bodies anymore because it all exists out there, on the internet, in the cloud, wherever we need it. Actually, in 2021, or sorry, 2011, my bad, 
there was a study done that was trying to get a, a sense of how the internet, in particular Google, is affecting our brains. The study started by gathering two groups of people. One group was told to look at a series of information on a piece of paper, physical paper, uh, for five minutes and then report back what they read. But they were also told they would, have, they would still have access to that paper. So read it over and then report on what, you, what it says, but you will still be able to hold the paper. The other group was given the same information, the same five minutes, but they were told they would have to remember the information without the paper, that the paper would be taken away from them. Now, not surprisingly, the group who didn't believe they would ha have access to the information uh, later remembered far more information off the sheet than the one who believed they were told they would have it. From there, they looked more broadly into how Google uh, and the constant access to information being always there, just a click away, is affecting us. And they called it the Google effect, which is not that creative, but it is, right? Their takeaway was simple. Though the average person reads more now and takes in more information now than ever before in human history, and it's not even close, the average person tends to remember far less we retain less information than we, than, than we used to, the Google effect. Why remember, why remember it if I can find it later, right? I think the best way probably to get at this point tangibly is, uh, is, if we were to, is to ask this question. If you were to lose your phone today and you needed to call someone for help, how many numbers could you recall? I'm curious, I'm actually going to do a poll. Answer honestly. How many of you think you have, you have 10 numbers memorized that you could make 10 different phone calls? Wendy, a couple of you, right? Not, not a couple brave people raised their hand. 10 numbers, that's, that's impressive. All right, how many people think they have five? A few more. How many of you are like me and know yours and your wife's, right? That's it, and sometimes forget your wife's? Yeah, I'm with you on that. Like, that's all I got. Right? If I lose my phone, I can't call anybody. Well, I'm lucky 911's only three numbers, so I'd forget that, right? Besides my own, I know Jen's, and that's it. Now, those who are a little older, it wasn't always that way, was it? Right? You used to have a lot more of them up here because you knew if you didn't, you, would, you, might, not, you might not have them when you need them. We had, we had far more memorized because we didn't have access to it. We used to store informations in our, information in our head, but now we have become excarnational people. Now, while in many ways that's absolutely been a blessing, it has created unfortunate side effects. Let me just share with you a few of them that Taylor points out. He says that, with, that in this space, that humanity in many places has, has reports losing our sense of place. What I mean by that? There was a time when you were traveling, you actually needed to know how to get to the place you were going. Maybe that sounds funny, but I know there are a lot of you out there that are exactly like me, that barely even look at that informational screen at the beginning that shows your whole trip. You just hit go, and wherever it tells you to turn, you do, right? And you hope you don't Michael Scott it into a lake, right? How many of you are with me on that? Yeah? Yep. There was a day, though, that didn't happen. You needed to pay attention to the landmarks, to the bends in the roads, to maps. Right, does anyone here even own a physical map anymore? I would be shocked. Oh, you do? okay, a lot of you do. Didn't think that was a thing anymore. I was wrong. Good work, people. I have them on your phones. I don't know if you knew that. You don't need the paper anymore. Uh, 
But like we said, we used to have to plan out your, you'd have to pull out a map, you have to plan it out, or at least read through the Google Maps, because if, when you had it, would anybody have to print out Google Maps? I did for a season, right? You remember that? MapQuest or Google Maps, either one, right? They, they work the same way, but then you'd have like 50 pages, and the problem is like you, you had to look at it beforehand, because if you missed one, then, then what? You gotta like go backwards and try again. Uh, that wasn't fun. Uh, but you used to have to plan that stuff out. You don't have to anymore. Now you just have to know the address and we go. We don't have to hold any information inside. It, our phone or GPS or whatever we have does it for us. But more than that, there was a time where people would walk their neighborhoods, which, which included stores, schools, and churches. They were all there in walking distance because they had to be, right? Your village was all self-contained. And so on the way to the store, you had to walk past the rest of your neighbors because it just was the way it was. But with the invention of the car, we've become mobile. So Taylor says that now because everywhere is available to us, we actually find ourselves not feeling like we belong anywhere. Excarnation. We're always living in the future, never content on where we are, always wishing we were somewhere else. Maybe some of you can feel that. I know when I was reading through it, I could. He argues we're losing our sense of place. The second thing he warns us that we're losing is our sense of community. Fifty years ago, if you were to build a new home, you would build a garage off the back of your home and put a large front porch in front because you wanted to connect with your neighbors. But in the last 50 years, that shift. Most of the homes now don't have a, a, if they have a front porch, it's small or they don't have one at all, but instead have a large, what, back deck, right? Most of your modern homes will have a relatively small front porch and a large either back, back deck or back patio sitting area. I'm, I'm not going to lie, my house is that way. The first thing you see when you drive up is not someone sitting on their front porch, but a garage door. In an excarnate world, it's possible to drive into your house, pull into your garage, shut the door, and never even know the name of your neighbors. And while that gives us a sense of privacy, which isn't bad, we lose our sense of belonging to the community around us. The data supports that fully. More than ever, people report feeling disconnected, disillusioned, and alone. Even though digitally we're connected to more people than we've ever been before, the, the rates of loneliness and depression and feeling alone are exponentially higher than they've ever been before. Excarnate. Which brings us back to where we started in Matthew 5. Jesus calls us to be salt and life. People in our neighborhoods who, who, who strive to be something different than the excarnate world. Enhancers, preservers, illuminators, attractors. We see Paul talk about it in Romans 15, if you want to follow along as well, too. Romans 15, starting at verse 1. says, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to, not, and not to please ourselves. We should all please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through, endurance, through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this particular space... What Paul is calling us to is, to is is to be incarnate people of Jesus for our neighbors. 
Actually, he uses this exact same phrase here at the end. So when he says that you may have the same attitude of mind towards, uh, toward, uh, towards each other that Christ Jesus had is the exact same phrase he uses in Philippians 2. When he says, have, be of the same attitude of mind who Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or, reti- or retained or used for himself, but instead humbled himself, became nothing for the sake of the other. What we see in Romans and in Philippians is, is, the char- is a charge to the church to do more than just rage against some of the problems that we've seen in this excarnate world. But it's a call to do what Jesus did, to move into our neighborhoods and fall in love with them, to be salt and light, to be incarnational people in an excarnational world. This is the movement that Jesus inaugurated. Whether, it, whether it's in his, in his declaration of whatever you do in word or deed, do it all for the glory of Christ. Whether it's a call to love and care for each and every person. Whether it's in Corinthians when it describes the church as the body of Christ. The hands and feet, the incarnate, in, in some ways representing the, incarnate, the incarnateness of Christ. See, the fact of the matter is, the world around us is becoming increasingly skeptical of Christians, Right? And I'm pretty sure we can all feel that. Some of that skepticism has been fair. We have to own that. We have made mistakes. But others, not as much. One of the things I've noticed recently is it's becoming more and more common for Christianity to be the butt of jokes, right? Whether it's on late night TV or social media or whatever it might be, uh, there used to be a day where, I, probably because people were afraid of getting a lightning bolt zapping them because that's what, we kind of have to own that one, unfortunately. Um, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it's becoming much more common for that to be the thing. Now, well, I, I do think, I, I, this isn't going to be me just ranting about, uh, about all of that. I think there actually is space to have a sense of humor in regards to faith. Um, honestly, when you read through the Bible, it's very clear that certain parts of the Bible uh, poke fun at religion itself, right? That they, they use satire to help Israel see some of the places they haven't been able to do uh, what they were called to do. So there is space for that, and I'm not trying to be, uh, be extra grumpy about that. Um, but while I do think there's room for humor and faith, I've been becoming, I've been becoming increasingly annoyed by it, and I didn't want to use a word stronger than annoyed. Uh, and I, and I, it just, it's been bugging me, uh, because I th- one, I don't think it's that funny, and two, something else was going on there that was, it was bugging me. But, I, but when I was preparing this message, I think it helped me understand why. On the one hand, the humor, the humor is thin, I, I, I don't think it's that funny, not because I'm offended, necessarily, but because I, it's not actually taking shots at what I consider Christianity to be. What I mean by that is that it often takes shots at people who have, who have weirdly conflated different parts of the faith. Whether, it's, whether it's, it's highlighting people that have inappropriately matched their politics and their faith together and, and, made it, made, and say that certain things are, are part of our faith that aren't. Or, or if they're taking shots at characterizations of what Christians think the Bible says, but not actually what it does say. Or they play up the dated stereotypes about church and the people inside. But as I was preparing this, it hit me why it bugged me. Because what have they done to faith? They've attempted to excarnate it, to make it excarnate. To take the flesh off of its bones. To make it a... a a thin characterization of what, the, what Christianity or faith actually is rather than what it's meant to be. <clears throat> I 
which is why I think it's so important that we realize what we're called to then as the church. One temptation when we start to see the, the, the social world push back on us in the way that it has is to get angry, is to rage, is to stamp down and take and to, and to actually, unfortunately, in many ways, then fit the stereotypes that we've been given, is to fight a fight, to feel like we have to be defenders of the faith in all places, in all, in all, in all ways. But I wonder if there's a different way to do it. When you think about why you're here today, how did you come to be here in this space right now? If you're new to the church or to faith, what got you here? If you were born into a Christian family, why are you still in the faith? Is it because you have a Loctite understanding of every aspect of doctrine? If you do, then let's, you, know, you can come up and teach on predestination next week or something. But is that, is that why you're here? Now, don't get me wrong. I, think there's, uh, I love thinking and discussing those things. But I'm guessing that if we were to do a poll here of why you're here in this space now, like, I mean, in this actual spot right now, the vast majority of us here came to church because of someone rather than something that was taught. A real person at some point put meat on the bones of faith. Whether it was a youth group leader growing up or a parent who actually modeled what it looked like to live the faith or a friend who you saw something in when I want some part of that. Or someone who cared for you at your lowest moment or a genuine hug when you felt alone. Or a neighbor that helped you clean your leaves while you were sick. Or always said hi with a smile every time you walked by. You know why the late night jokes were annoying to me? It's because of all of you and how you work hard to feed around 100 kids a weekend. Because I've seen you care for your neighborhoods and for your communities. Because I've seen you incarnate the faith to strive to live more and more like Jesus in regards to how you treat one another. That's how the church pushes back on the walls of culture. Not through better and better arguments, not through signs in our front yards or social media posts, not by yelling about the media or our political system or leaders, but instead by being incarnational neighbors, showing the world that our faith is so much more than a set of rules or ideas, but instead is a world-shifting kind of worldview in which we say, hey, we actually believe the way of Jesus is the best way, and I don't, we don't, I don't even have to make an argument for that. I'm just going to show you that through our life, my life. Actually, as we so often see in the Bible, this struggle is not new to us. Peter speaks into everything we've been talking about today in 1 Peter 2.9. If you have it, I really, if you don't, if you have a Bible, I'd really encourage you to open it there. 1 Peter 2.9. Let's close with that this morning. 1 Peter 2.9 starts like this. Before we set the stage, in the Old Testament, uh, the nation of Israel was called to be the chosen people of God. They were given a charge in, in Genesis 12, in which God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to interact with you in a special kind of way. And with that special kind of blessing, you then are now going to bless the rest of the world. That's the charge given to Israel in the Old Testament. I will be with you in a special way so that you go out and bless the entire world. 
In the passage we're about to read, Peter is referencing that charge given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, but he's speaking to the church now. In the Old Testament, Israel is called the chosen people, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, which you will hear again in a second. Now Peter addresses the church. He says to them in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What Peter is doing in this first part of the passage is he's comparing the church to the Old Testament Israel. That, I, that God's declaration that, that all those promises given to Israel in the Old Testament have been passed to the church. Now you are that chosen people. I, God's promise is that I will be with you in a special way. That you'll be God's special possession so that you can show you what the kind of life God wants you to lead looks like. That charge then that was given to Israel has been given back to us to be incarnational people in the world around us. And Peter goes on to tell us how. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What Peter's talking about here is it people that are living in a world that views things differently than the church is supposed to? Perhaps a world that's trying to, to, to take the flesh off the bones of what faith means. And in his world, it's Rome. Whenever you study Rome, unfortunately, you see how much of that still exists today. And so when Paul's, or Peter here is talking about the, the church community, he's saying that you are foreigners in the society that you find yourself in, and I think a lot of us can feel that tension today too, right? He says, resist the things the world calls you to, but then how, how do you push back on those walls? He says this, live such good lives amongst the pagans, or in this case, with the people who view the world differently than you. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, though they make late-night jokes about you or try to caricaturize your faith or whatever it might be, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. And there we have it. A 30-minute long sermon that could essentially just been reading 1 Peter 2. So you got a little extra there. But that's the charge that we have. We've been told that we are supposed to be in people who live incarnately in a world that's sex-carnate. A world that, that pushes back the edges of culture, of, of, a, of, a, of people who feel lost and alone by living the kind of lives that show there's a better way. Will you pray with me? Father God, may we uh, be ex incarnate people. People that when they look at how we live, see the goodness uh, you, that you have lavished on all of us. Not so that we can exalt ourselves. It's very clear throughout Scripture that that's not the point. But so that we can help others find, find the deep and meaningful and significant life that you've led us all to. God, may we be people that live such good lives that even though, that, that we can push back on, on the characterizations, on the jokes, on those things, because people will go, yeah, but I know John or Jane. You may make fun of Christians, but there's something different there. May we put meat back on the bones of our faith and be people that strive to change the world that we find ourselves in, the neighborhoods that we find ourselves in. Amen.